Hey, welcome to Whatcha Doin' with Brandon Horwin and Sophie Williams. And today's special guest is... Hello, I am Beth Level and uh, I am a singer, dancer. I'm a fake dancer, but I try to do the best I can. I'm getting ready to go into my 14th Broadway show once this COVID is over. And I won a Tony Award that happens to be with me at all times. I'm just kidding. It's just here today. <laughs> How did it get in my hand so quickly? I don't know, but here it is. And it's probably I have all sorts of props. It's ridiculous. That is the best prop that could Thank have you, right? the show off. The absolute best. But welcome to What You Doing, Beth. We are beyond thrilled to have you today. Thank you. I'm beyond thrilled to be here and to have a reason to put on pants. <laughs> Can you take us a little bit through your journey to theater? How did you get your start and sort of, you know, where did the roads kind of take you to bring you to your upcoming 14th Broadway show at the moment? You know, uh, mine is very untraditional and not a very normal path, uh, as I'm speaking to so many people and have been in this business for so long. I started extremely late for someone, like I know kids in my show, like in prom, they're like 19, 20, 21, and in 42nd Street, they were even younger. And I didn't even do my first musical until my senior year in high school. I didn't even really know what it was, what musicals were because my family wasn't really into it. And I, I grew up in North Carolina. And at the time there wasn't a lot of uh, venues to like now you can see so many different things, but back then not so much. Plus my parents weren't into it. Nobody was into it, but they did the, you know, the proverbial senior musical. And my friend asked me to audition with her and I was like, why not? And I, I've told this story many times and it's so true. The first time you're in the room with the oxygen of people of like minds. And I was just like, where have all these people been all my life? Who, who are you? How can I be here for the rest of my life? And of course, you know, back in the seventies, my parents are like, no, you have to get a normal job. You have to get married, you have to have kids, which I did all of that anyway, but they were so afraid I'd starve to death. So I, I have a degree in social work counseling and a minor in theater because that was all available at the school I went to. And believe me, social work counseling is all about listening and responding anyway, which is what acting is. So I feel like it was kind of acting. And I did every musical, every play, every, every, everything I could get my hands on because I just, it's like Pandora's box opened that senior year. And I just had to figure out was it a curiosity? Was it a passion? Was it a possibility? Is this ridiculous? And I had some fabulous teachers, mentors who really pushed me to continue. And at the in my senior year, they tried to convince me to go to New York. I was like, no, no, I'm way too scared of that. It was too intimidating. So I went and I decided to keep going to school. So I have a master's degree. I have an MFA in acting and directing. And in those two years at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, changed my life again. And from then on, I knew my goal, I just wasn't sure of the path to get there. And I decided to wait and I was able to get my equity card with an internship I did at a theater in Pennsylvania. And then I moved like Peggy Sawyer. I was on a bus from Allentown and I moved to New York to this really crappy, but who cares apartment in Hell's Kitchen. And that was many years ago. <laughs> and I'm still here, <laughs> even in the pandemic. <laughs> yes, I may have lost my mind a little bit on occasions, but that's okay. That's awesome. Absolutely. 
So starting from the beginning, can you tell us a bit about your Broadway debut in the 1980 production of 42nd Street? Right. You know, what was that moment like for you? You know, what, what did it take to get there? I auditioned uh, three times for the national tour of 42nd Street. So the 42nd Street had already opened on Broadway and now they were putting out the first national tour. And by then I was lucky enough to have an agent. And so I had my audition time and slot. And back, back in the old days, children, you actually auditioned in the theater. So can you imagine uh, at the time 42nd Street was there before Phantom came in and there's this really gross bug right here. Got it. Anyway, <laughs> um, he's gone. Thank you for your service. There's this really scary alley in on Broadway that leads to the stage door of the Majestic, the where I did bandstand, I can't think of a thing, uh, the Jacobs and the Golden, which I don't think is called the Golden anymore. Schoenfeld. And so I remember having my time going in that alley. And fortunately, I didn't know the people in the audience because literally it's like Beth Level, it's you know your turn. And there's, there was a ghost lamp on the stage and I could see in the distance, just a row of suits, just a row of people. And fortunately, I didn't know it was David Merrick, Mark Bramble, Michael Stewart. Um, all of Gower Champions assistants, producers, just people, people. I just, so fortunately they let me sing my song first. And so I sang a, a version. I finally kind of found a go-to song that was starting to get me uh, callbacks. So I sang that and they seemed to like that. And then I read the sides, you know, the sides aren't very deep with 42nd Street. So I think, you know, they liked my comedy. And then they asked me what I tap dance. Now tap dancing, thanks to my parents, who encouraged me to go to Betty Kovac School of Dance in Raleigh. So I tapped, I took tap for about five years, but that was like second grade to fifth grade. And then I stopped, which I regret. <laughs> I wish I had continued. And then I started tap dancing a little, only because musicals I was cast in would ask me to tap. Anyway, so Gower, one of Gower Champion's assistants, uh, her name is Karen Baker. She's this phenomenal tap dancer and I, I remember a, kind of like a, a record in my head when I saw her coming from the audience going up the stairs to me on the stage it was like do you do, do, do. I was terrified it's like oh my god I'm so scared <laughs> because she was so intimidating because she was so powerful and skilled and you know had my the, my future in the palm of her hand anyway she showed me anytime Annie's tap break which is really complicated and way out of my wheelhouse. And here I am, I'm a little pink suit that my mother gave me because she said it would pop on the stage when I auditioned. And she, Karen threw this step out in front of me, inspected me to pick it up and I was mortified. So I took my Walkman, thank you, and I recorded her feet and tried to identify the steps that I knew. And I did not do very well, but I think they wanted to give me some time to improve my tap skills. So she said I had, I think I had like four days. She said, if you improve, um, then you have a job. So my husband at the time and I rented this really crappy uh, studio and I worked so hard. And when I got back, I did it, I did it better. I still had a long way to go and they offered me the job and I went out on the first national tour for eight months. And then the role became available in New York and I went in. Now, meanwhile, when I went into the show in New York, it had been running about three years. So there wasn't the spark of everyone's opening night. It was just me <laughs> making my Broadway debut. 
So I had this singular energy of just off the wall thrill and terror because, you know, I had been doing this show with the national tour and each show has its own DNA. And I just tried to stay out of everyone's way and the big numbers and make sure that I didn't hurt anybody, but still, you know, did my show. And I remember it being so wrapped up in just technically staying safe and making sure that I was serving the piece as I should. I remember I came out, there's a big number called dames, da, 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 and there's all these, this rainbow of beautiful dresses. And I was in a new dress from what I wore in the national tour. And I remember coming out that door. And in that moment, I realized I was making my Broadway debut and got literally a little verklempt, a little choked up. And it's like, uh-uh, get, nope, get back on it or you're gonna hurt somebody. So that was my glamorous Broadway debut. That's awesome. Oh, it was pretty cool. <laughs> It was really, it was cool. And I had, had friends and family in the audience and so they all cried. So they experienced it for me. It's like, oh, bless her heart. <laughs> and I stayed with it for almost four years. Yeah. I, I became quite the skilled tap dancer after that. I still can do that step waiting in line at a post office or a, a bank. It's like, what are you doing? It's like, anytime, any tap break. Duh. <laughs> so you have a Tony award you showed us. I did. Um, so yes. you were Beatrice Stockwell and the Drowsy Chaperone. Mm -hmm. There's been, you know, a lot of talk about all the work that went into the creation of your award-winning performance. So could you share just a bit of like your process with us about how that went? Well, I was like, I think the last person to be hired, which also feels great. <laughs> um, I knew Casey Nicola, the director, he was in the ensemble of Crazy For You. We were both in the original company of Crazy For You. And then he's gone on to, you know, he's one of the most prolific Broadway directors now. So uh, he gave me a, an audition. And I, I like to tell people, once you get the side to audition, this role really wasn't on the page. It's one of those roles that has to be, has to come alive, has to be lifted off the page without dialogue, really, because it wasn't there to support any kind of character choice. So I remember thinking, who is this person? And to be honest, I don't think the creative team actually knew yet what what her DNA was, what was going to lift her off the page. And they were like, who's going to, who's going <laughs> to, anyone, anyone? So I auditioned. Um, I don't even think Stumble Along was written. If it was, it wasn't finished. So, you know, you just bring your your book, what you think shows off anything that represents your, your talent <laughs> in your comedy. And they gave me a call back and I went and did the same thing, was reading the sides. But again, the sides are like, I don't understand the question. I mean, if you don't know this woman, how in the world can you bring any life and comedy to that? That's something you need to do in rehearsal and with directors. So I think because Casey was my pal, he called me and he said, I'm so sorry. I mean, I know, I know I didn't get it. I didn't get it. And he went, that's my cat, sorry. He likes to help me with podcasts <laughs> and Zooms. And they said they felt like they needed someone older and a little more, uh, you know, a little more, I don't know. They went to LA and they auditioned Eartha Kitt and uh, Tina Louise, you know, uh, Tina, uh, what's her name from Gilligan's Island? Stop, Malcolm. And <laughs> <laughs> Hold, please. <laughs> and then they came back and apparently they offered it to someone in New York and then that person got another job or something and turned it down. And I think out of desperation, I get a call from my agent. This is months later saying I have a job offer for you, which is phenomenal because an offer means you don't have to audition. I'm like, yes. And he said, you've been offered 
Beatrice Stockwell in The Drowsy Chaperone. I, and I told him he was incorrect. Then I didn't get that. So I made him call the casting people back and he called back and he said, nope, they've offered you the role. You need to pack your bags because you leave in three weeks for a two and a half month out of Broadway tryout at the Amundsen Theater in Los Angeles. So I was like, whoa. <laughs> so, you know, thrilled. So I get there and a lot of people had either done the workshop or the reading or the nymph production of it. And we just began to explore all of the characters. And this is something I really give Casey credit for. We would get to work at 10 o'clock every morning. And from 10 to 12, we would work on uh, improvs. We would watch films of the time of the 20s just to see what the tone was and to see if we could all be on the same page with our acting style. You know, even though it was heightened, it was all very truthful and to, just to try to figure that out. And tell me if you heard the story before, but I, we worked and worked and worked. I had to write a bio and I didn't know who she was. So my bio absolutely sucked. And it was like, my, you know, I just made it up. I didn't, I, I was, well, something will stick if I keep, you know, throwing, throwing it up against the wall. But we did a, a hot seat improv one day. And I don't know if you guys know what that is, but literally there's a stool and all the creatives and the actors are behind the table and you you come on as your character and they, you, they throw you lines and you have to respond as your character. Now, if you don't really know who your character is, it's a little bit of a challenge, but it's a great way to start discovering what works, what lands, what doesn't land. And we had been doing it a couple of times. And I remember on a Friday, time for a hot seat. And I'm like, here, I'm going to go waste everybody's time. Again. <laughs> and for the first time, Casey says, ladies and gentlemen, as he, he's introducing me, he says, Dame Beatrice Stockwell. And he'd never used the word Dame before. And I remember thinking, oh, well, that's informing. So I come out and the cast starts yelling, bravo, like I was the biggest star ever. And I remember going, Thank you. Thank you. And I went all the way down to the floor and asked for more applause. And from that moment on, I knew where to start discovering Beatrice Stockwell. I said, I see who she is now. And then the bio came very easily. And then Greg Barnes showed me his costume design sketches for her, which I, I have some pictures in here. If you remind me, I'll take them down. Um, and it all just started to come together. And Casey and the creative team, Bob Martin and Lisa and Greg just started trusting me. It's like just come in, throw it up against the wall. Let's figure out where she lives. And then we started working on Stumble. And then it was like, can you hit that note? Can you hit that note? And lo and behold, anywho, boy, that was a long-winded story. Thank you very much. But I knew, you know, I, I knew they'd made a mistake in casting me and I felt so bad. So, you know, for this to happen, it was like, no, they didn't make a mistake. You worked hard, you earned this. I mean, not, I believe me, I made mistakes, but you know, coming together and discovering and giving birth to this phenomenal woman. And you know, it, it was really, it was very exciting and satisfying. Amazing. Wow. I mean, I know. I know it's true. It's just so amazing to hear it really is. Oh, good. So most recently you starred in your Tony nominated performance as incredibly, by the way, I saw you twice. You did, um, so you have such good taste. <laughs> <laughs> as Dee Dee Allen in the hit Broadway musical, The Prom. So it is sort of, there, there, you know, there's been talk, I've read some things and seen some things that, you know, the role was sort of crafted for you. That the creative... Oh no, not sort of, totally. <laughs> so can you talk about a bit about that, how that, you know, 
how does that, how does your process change knowing that the role was crafted for you and how does that creative process take flight and, you know, sort of, you know, following that it, it, it's, it really did pay off and the work paid off because I know that incredible video that circulates of the final closing performance oh my where gosh. for yeah. a, you, you held the note for an unbelievable amount of time. And then more unbelievably than that, I think the audience stood for something like 10 minutes and just cheered and hooted and hollered for oh, you, it's... all for you. So what was that moment like to kind of, it, it had to be a moment of reflection for you in, in, in such a way. I felt like, well, A, I left, body organs on the stage. I held that note. <laughs> I was like, oh God, is that my liver? But it was worth it. it, it you know, prom had such phenomenal love and the audience was there to share that with us. And the Tonys had just happened. And I just think it was a way to show us how much they appreciated and loved us and the show. And it was one of the most special moments of my life. Just, it was like the line was blurred between artist and audience. And it was just this whole pool of love and celebration. And I, I was overwhelmed and I don't get overwhelmed often, but I couldn't speak. And I, I, it imprinted on me to this day, you know, that's it, how I made it through COVID. <laughs> I bottled it all up and um, I'm just waiting to get to the other side to get back on the stage again. But it was an amazing, amazing moment. And I'm so thrilled that someone recorded it so I could show my kids, you know? So that was really cool. But getting back to your first question, I knew that Dee Dee Allen was written for me. And that when you're sitting in a room at a first table read that has ever even been heard out loud, they don't even really know what's happened. It's me and Brooks and Angie and Chris, and it was written for the four of us to know how your choices are going to imprint this work for the rest of eternity, hopefully, is such a thrill. And we worked really hard to get the tone of DD and the tone of the show right. And it took us from that very first table read at Casey Studio till opening night of Broadway. It was eight years, eight years. So I didn't outgrow the part, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, every time we'd go in, uh, we do a workshop of it, we do a lab and all the creative people would learn what's working, what's not working. Act one changed so much, you wouldn't even recognize it when we started. In Atlanta, they kept, we did our out of Broadway tryout in Atlanta at the Alliance Theater. And you know, if you don't set the tone of the opening number, you're not sure you're gonna have the audience wanting to go on the ride with you for the rest of the journey. And it was really problematic to figure out how to make these, particularly the four of us, really funny, really, look at my cat. <laughs> I love it, I love it. Let me know if he starts knocking stuff. Malcolm, can you get down please? Thank you. You know, that we like the snark in them, but we couldn't be unlikable. And that's a very fine, fine line. Right, Malcolm? <laughs> All right, just ignore the cat in the... <laughs> so we worked and we worked and we worked, but in Atlanta, the, the number, the opening number kept changing so much. And it was mostly on Brooks and I, to the point where we would come in, it would be a whole new verse, a whole new, uh, you know, bridge, a whole new patter. And I literally would write down the lyrics for that night and shove them in my bra and my costume. So I'd make sure they were like this wet, sweaty little mess. <laughs> make sure that what's, what, what is the lyrics? What, what are the intentions tonight? And we would go out there and 
it was so scary and and exhilarating and of course it all changed when we went to new york it, atlanta taught everyone a lot and we had to wait because after atlanta casey got the green light to do mean girls so everything kind of went on pause and they still you know worked on the show but then we came back with a bang so it's one of those shows I don't know if you've done this, that you're just so excited for someone to experience it beside you guys in the rehearsal room, because it just felt different. It felt special. It felt meaningful and it felt funny and heartfelt. So yeah, that was a highlight of my life. Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by WCUA, the Catholic University of America's official student-run radio station. We encourage you to tune in to our live broadcasts on wcua.caster.fm. We are looking for podcast editors. Experience is not necessary. Email us at radiowcua at gmail.com for more information. And now, back to the podcast. Yeah, now how do you feel knowing like how far it's gone? with the prom movie and everything. Like I that. know there's a, there was the movie, there's a, a, a novel coming out. There's, I mean, all sorts of things. So yes, we only ran a year, but I have a feeling prom is gonna really hear, feel its import years from now, you know, years from now. And I, I, I can't wait to reflect back that, you know, our sh- little show did the first uh, same sex kiss on the Macy's Day Parade. Hello. I mean, honestly, I feel like our little musical changed lives. Yeah. And that's such an honor to be a part of that, even if it's belting body organs out on the, but truthfully heartfelt. And <laughs> now, how does it feel Meryl Streep reviving your character? Is it, well, you know what, if you're going to give, if I give birth to someone and I need someone to take care of my child, who better yeah oh, oh hey Meryl Streep so <laughs> and she's been so so gracious in acknowledging you know me and the work of the Broadway company it's really it's it's thrilling yeah that's awesome I know <laughs> um so I I said that we were going to get to this at the beginning but you starred as Donna Sheridan in Mamma Mia on Broadway Good. Sophie and I last year directed a little cabaret, a Mamma Mia cabaret at school. So was that show as fun as it looked to be a part of in New York? Uh, wait a minute, how did you do a cabaret of Mamma Mia? Did you, did you shrink the script and just do like a thing? Here's the, the thing, yes. don't, tell, don't tell MTI, but basically we found a way to get around it by using ABBA songs, yeah, yeah, yeah. ABBA cabaret. So we just did a compilation of ABBA songs that also happen to be in Mamma Mia. Great, because you know, people don't come to see Mamma Mia for the book. <laughs> I gotta tell you. People, it's a great story. It's, not, it's like, no, no, I don't think so. And by the time I was doing it, I must've been like the sixth Donna. I don't even remember. And people were coming there to hear. It was fascinating because when the rights were released, apparently, this is how the rumor goes, uh, Benny and Bjorn, I don't know their last names, I'm so sorry, the ABBA, uh, released the rights and said, yes, you can make a musical of this, but the songs have to sound like the recordings. So A, it was already such a huge body of work for my character to sing and walk around in spandex. And let me talk about the rake stage later. But we worked so hard 
to make Mamma Mia. Here I go again. My, my, how can I resist ya? It's like no vibrato there. Yeah. To make it sound like the money, money, money in a rich man's world. Off on two. You know, there was so much detailing in the ABBA singing, which I found fascinating. I would have to work on straight tone, straight tone, now, vibrato. Fascinating, fascinating. It was, so that's a lot of work. And the amount of vocal singing I had to do was extraordinary. And it was a rake stage, which physically, there was a lot of injuries. My neck went out, you know, uh, it was a lot, of, a lot of physical injuries because the rake was so severe. But at the end of the day, in that mega mix curtain call, when we come up on a hydraulic lift and we're all like in spandex, I have never, ever, ever felt like such a rock star. And just to blatantly be out there going, you can dance. And they're going, wow. And they're dressed, you know, they have, the audience has props, you know, boas. And it was, it's, I, that's probably the closest I'll ever get to being a rock star. So that was pretty cool. That and the last thing of ladies improving, but that's different. That's a different rock star feeling. This was just, and you know, the music's fun to sing. I mean, they had hit after hit after hit and their music has, you know, sustained time. How long, the 30 years they've been around? And it, they're still so popular. Ma, people love Mamma Mia because they love ABBA. They love the music. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of being a rock star, you were honored as a famed character at Sardi's in New York City in 2019. Oh. What was that moment like? I mean, that's among, you know, legends of legends and there you are. So, you know, how did you feel about that? Well, it's like, it was about time, y'all. I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> but then again, uh, if I was, it was the perfect time for the caricature and all that celebration because it was in the middle of prom and I had my prom chosen family with me. So it meant so much to me to have it in that moment with these people in the point in my life now, you know, things happen when they happen. And it was... And then I liked it, you know, you never see it. They reveal it. it just was waiting for like, you know, uh, like, oh God, <laughs> it's going to be stuck on the wall forever. But it's really beautiful. And I was, I was so humbled and flattered. And, you know, Brooks made a speech and I cried. And everyone, almost everyone I knew was in that room eating pigs in a blanket and cheese. And then I had to go do a show. But it was really, it was, it was such an honor. I went by soon after to see if they like, had put it in the bathroom or something. <laughs> and because it was new, and then Brooks was able to get his about a month after mine. And Brooks and I were right at the front door. I don't know where we are now, but it was really, it was really cool. It's like, oh, come on. Whose life do you think you're living, sister? <laughs> That's great. So also in 2019, it was announced that you will be starring in the musical adaptation of The Devil Wars Prada. As yep. Miranda Priestley, and it was recently announced that the world premiere is set to 2022. How does it feel to be cast as such an iconic film character? And, and is it kind of daunting to have yes. to put that for this? <laughs> yes, I'm gonna call Meryl. Go, Meryl. Listen. Yeah, just call her. Yeah, can we have just can we have some tea? Um, <laughs> it's thrilling. I loved that movie. Uh, but it's it's so iconic. Everyone loves that movie. Not everyone, but most. If you talk about a movie that everyone loves, Prada's up there. And the only thing that keeps me from panicking 
is that it's my responsibility for my Miranda to sing. And I mean that literally and in the text of what our Devil Wears Prada is, our Devil Wears Prada is gonna be musicalized. So it's gonna be a whole new form of Devil Wears Prada that still don't know yet. We're still working on script and stuff. And yet I still loved Meryl Streep's performance so much. I'm gonna steal as much as I can and still feel like I am authentic that Miranda is coming authentically through Beth Level. So I don't know, this is gonna be, it's gonna be a journey. I'll tell you that right now. That's I can't cool. wait, I can't wait. I can't wait to hear the music. You know, I haven't heard very much of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was written by Elton John. So I'm really hoping this really makes him explode because he's been working so hard for so long. <laughs> <laughs> Our fingers are crossed for Elton. Thank you, but don't, don't hang in there, Elton, hang in there. You got this. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so our audience is comprised of many different young artists, but including young singers. So as someone with, you know, a decades long career of belting, how have you maintained your voice so amazingly? I have no idea. I've learned how to take, sing correctly most days and to know when not to sing. I just, I, I warm up. I just know how to take care of my voice now. It's, and, and that changes every year. You know, I'm, I'm not 20 anymore. So probably the warm up I would do at 20 is completely different now. But I, I know how to take care of myself. And when I'm doing eight shows a week, I really kind of live like a nun. <laughs> you know, there's, unless I have to, there's just, I just, I'm quiet, particularly for something like prom and Mama Mia, it's like, Mm-mm, I just, I don't talk. Just very quiet. And, you know, I hate missing shows. So I learned how to take care of my voice so I could show up and do my job. But there's, you know, I'm a human being. Some days, like, oh, I shouldn't have come in today. You sound awful, and you just get through it. Absolutely. Um, so you were also, I, I, another amazing performance I saw was uh, Mama June in Bandstand a few uh, years ago. And there, you know, it seemed like there was a different kind of feel to that show, was particularly because it could have been a different kind of audience, especially with its honor and respect toward veterans and those who served our country. So do you did you feel that, too, when creating and performing that show, that there was... Um, definitely a different type of audience that it was honoring and appealing to at the same time. Yes, I felt like even from the first day of rehearsal uh, with Andy Blankenbuehler and we did so much research into World War II and you know I was older than the dancers in the show and it was like a gravitas to this story. It was and we were told over and over again by vets who came to see the show that they'd never seen themselves represented on stage like this in all its glory and all its flaws and all its everything and man it was the same kind of reaction on the opposite end of the spectrum of prom there was people were very very emotional during that show and afterwards particularly if it resonated with them personally or with their family or their father their mother and every night before the show we would meet for half hour and dedicate the show to a vet so we got to learn a lot about a lot of vets and we had a wall of honor uh stage right and we had pictures mostly from our family members, you know, grandfathers that served, my father. And it just felt like, again, I hate to use this word over and over again, but a real privilege to be able to tell this story for all people who needed to hear it. 
and in such a beautiful artistic way. You know, Andy had such respect for the vets and their honor and to make sure that the story was told correctly. So it was, wow, do you, I don't know if you ever saw the show, but there's a moment when Andy choreographed Corey coming out on a piano and the soldiers behind him and just in t-shirts and dog tags looking like Iwo Jima. And it, oh, I just think that was one of the most beautifully imagined pieces of choreography I'd, I'd ever seen that I could hear the audience go, that, you know, art, sometimes art it can be so powerful. And to hear that and to be in that DNA was like, woof. that's another show that should have run much longer. Yeah. Absolutely. Totally agree. So Beth, where were you prior to the COVID shutdown and sort of how have you been adjusting? Were you um, doing anything virtually um, or, you know, to stay in, uh, engaged or in conversation and such? Yes, I was, we were getting ready to do a big workshop lab of Prada. When we shut down? February, March? I can't remember. I remember literally being, having my hair cut and I was on my phone as it was drawing and I was like, what? And it was the opening night for six and Broadway was shut down. And I remember feeling so bad for that cast because, you know, there were flowers in the room. They all had, you know, their opening. And it was like, oh no, and doubtfire. But we had planned on doing a six week, six to eight week workshop just of product to see where we were. And well, that didn't happen. So we did, you know, I didn't know, is it just me? Was I'm sure Zoom was around before the pandemic, but I had never, the skills Mima has acquired, it's pretty, I'm pretty amazed. So we did a, the very first time a cold read, which means you've never seen it before, really on Zoom with all these Brady Bunch people. <laughs> and we read Prada aloud to everybody and some of the producers and the director and the choreographer. And <laughs> that was terrifying because you don't know where to look. You know, I'm trying to connect with my little Brady Bunch people like Taylor, I was like, where is she? Oh yeah, so it was, it was fascinating. That said, in the pandemic, I lost so much work as we all did. You know, I had all the concert series lined up and just, you know, in theater, the good, the good news, bad news is the bad news is you don't know what's going to be, uh, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow. The good news is you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. That's kind of how we live moment to moment. And that's kind of how we're doing in the pandemic, moment to moment, day to day. You know, all of us know they're, they're good days, they're bad days, they're good moments, there's bad moments. And then you start over again and just try to somehow keep yourself healthy. My friend, Josh Lehman always goes, are you having a bad day? Good, you're nailing it. You having a good day? Great, you're nailing it. So my mantra is I'm nailing it, mm. whatever, you know, I'm nailing it, good, bad. I'm doing a lot of teaching and a lot of coaching with Zoom, which really makes me so happy. And I've done a lot of play readings and I've done virtual concerts, which are really weird, A, because you finish belting, it is not about Anna, it's all about Emma and not about me. And it's like, pick it. Cricket, cricket. <laughs> like, hey, where's the applause? Like, hey, no, it's, it's just really interesting. It's just a matter of time. I'm seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know how, when, why, how it's going to take shape, but yeah. absolutely. So, absolutely. On that note, you know, what advice do you have for young artists during this time on staying creative and what advice do you have for them going forward? Great question. And I wish some, maybe they would actually also give me advice too. I would absolutely 
do as much of this as you can. I know people that are getting together, Zooming and reading plays together. I had a group in Georgia do prom and drowsy chaperone just to kind of keep the motor going and to see, you know, can I still sing? Just finding ways to express your artistry in any way, shape or form. Watch movies, watch as much theater as you can in this medium, uh, read, just take care of yourself. You know, no one's asking you to write Hamlet, but I would just reach out and try to stay connected. You're, you're lucky you have, you know, your school at least gives you an opportunity to gather this way in one way, shape or form. And, you know, you've created this podcast. What a, another great way for me to articulate and remember and feel good and for you guys to create something. It is, it's definitely a creative outlet. And I'm sure there's so many people smarter than I that have come up with amazing ways to find a creative outlet, writing, uh, whatever, whatever makes you happy and still feeling like you're not, even though we are paused that as an artist, I'm not paused you know, doing this new play readings, doing so many podcasts. I learned so much about me and, and, you know, just one day at a time. That's all I can say. One day at a time. One day at a time. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, you've created roles, originated roles, roles have been crafted for you. Is there any role that you haven't done yet that you is just a dream of yours? You know, this sounds like a terrible answer, but it really is truthful. It hasn't been written yet. Only because when you're able to sink your claws into Dee Dee Allen and Beatrice Stockwell, the next one, I want that same responsibility. It's so, it's just a thrill to really give birth to something from down here, you know, into Dee Dee Allen and Ladies Improving. That said, until that happens, um, I did Gypsy, Mama Rose, three years ago at the Muni in St. Louis. And it only ran a week and it was uh, very intimidating to feel the responsibility of that role, wanting to make sure that I was good enough and worthy enough for the, the history of the beautiful, fabulous women that have done it and to Mr. Sondheim and all those other you know peoples. And I, it was really quite satisfying. And now I really want to be in those shoes a little bit longer just to see what else I can learn about this amazing complex character of Mama Rose, you know, the, the King Lear of musical theater for women. I'd like to do that again. Yeah. So in that same vein, do you have a favorite show you've ever done? Do you have a favorite person you've ever worked with? Anything like that? Oh, it's, you know, all my shows are my favorite because <laughs> at that, in that moment, they are my chosen family. Mm -hmm. um, you know, prom was so recent that I can't imagine having, I mean, I hope it happens, but a more joyful experience in the theater than prom was. And to be on stage with Brooks Ashmanskas and Chris and Angie, that has to be one of my favorites. But I have so many, I have so many. I was like, I'm just, you know, I'm in love with the person in the moment because we're here. But I look back at Drowsy and at Danny Burstyn and, and Bob Martin. And I, I look back at, you know, there's so many, I don't know if you feel the same way, but sometimes, particularly in a long run, like when you're on Broadway, sometimes, like I said, I did 40 Seconds Three for four years. They literally become my chosen family. I'm with them more than I am anyone else. And that relationship, I'm still so close to people uh, that I was in the first national tour of 40 Seconds Three with. Those bonds are amazing. 
So I think that's one of the bonuses of doing what we do because how we, it takes so much courage to do what we do, to be in a room, to even get up an audition, you know, to walk on that stage at the Majestic in my fuchsia pink hot suit and sing and try to tap dance in front of people. I just think we're a courageous, singular group of people. And like I said, back in the one day at a time vein, some days are really good, some months are good, some years are good, some, you know, you just yeah. get to the other side of this, let's figure it out. So you've shared so many great stories with us today. We have loved every single one of them, but is there a favorite story from your career that you just love telling? Girl, what time is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. As a matter of fact, the night I won the Tony Award, everybody's like, ooh, what? The night I won the Tony Award for the Drowsy Chaperone, they give you a luncheon for the nominees at the Rainbow Room. And at the time there was no press or anything. And essentially it's for us to celebrate each other. Like I sat at a table and had some chicken with uh, a light, a person nominated for a lighting design. And it, it's really special. And during drought, they didn't do this with prom, but during Drowsy Chaperone, they showed a film, a montage of what they would like. They didn't say this out loud, but it was good Tony Award acceptance speeches. Because you know, it's a, it's a network. They want ratings and they're saying, if you're lucky enough to win, please don't get up and list, you know, your, your tax accountant and your publicist. They said, can you just speak from your heart if you're lucky enough to win? And, and he also said, and you have 90 seconds from the time they say your name to this time they start playing the, you know, get off the stage music. So Drowsy was that night was a big blur because I had to do the matinee. We did a dress rehearsal in the morning at 7 a.m. Then I went and did a matinee. And then I got into Beth Level Pretty Clothes and went to the red carpet. Then I got into Beatrice Stockwell, dress, hair, wig, did our number because we were nominated for best musical. After that, I had to get back into Beth Level Pretty Clothes. So by the time I sat down in my seat, I was seven minutes away from my category. So I was like, oh, God. I just remember it just being crazy. And it's the first time I'd really experienced as an audience member sitting at uh, Radio City during a Tony Award with cameras going up and down and everything. And it's kind of a blur. They get to my category. And I remember Sara Ramirez says Beth Level. And I kind of left my body a little bit but I knew I had to say something. And I, I remember in, during the show, trying, it's like, do I write something? It's like, no, that means you think you're gonna win. It's like, well, what if, what if, what if, what if you're gonna get up there and just go like, <laughs> so I had you know, kind of listed a couple of things and I put a little teeny piece of paper, but all I remember is you have 90 seconds. And I ran up the aisle. I remember Bob Martin trying to hug me. He was like, stop it. Danny was like, not now, not now. So I went up on the stage and I remember just thinking, please don't curse, don't don't curse, don't fall and, and try to thank the people that you wanted to, but you stand up there, there's not even a podium, there's a little teeny one of those mics and you're looking at Radio City and cameras and trying to, trying to be articulate, dare I say even humorous or entertaining and it's like nothing's available, you just want to stay in the moment. And I remember I was running out of time and thinking, Oh my God, you have to thank your parents. And right as they're starting to play the playoff music, I honestly, to this day, don't know what I said really, but I remember going, oh, and thank you to Lynn and Ruby Level in Raleigh, North Carolina, something about them being the proudest parents on the planet. 
and it was done. So my moment that meant so much to me is that my mother the next day said from that moment on when I said their name, their phone didn't stop ringing from the television stations, the radio stations, relatives we didn't even know we had. She finally told me, I don't know, three or four days later, she said, well, I just now just take the, I take the phone to the bathroom with me because it's ringing all the time. <laughs> that giving them that night, and it's the last thing they saw me do, was such a gift. And that was making me cry. That was an amazing thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, it's like, it can touch hearts and minds and inspire for anybody. And it's a great note to end on. So thank you so, so much for joining us. I mean, congratulations on all your incredible successes and your, you. your ever-growing career. I mean, you know, thank you. so many amazing things coming up. One already announced that we can't wait to see in New York, hopefully sometime really soon. Sophie and I will be there for sure. Is there anything we can promote on here for you today? I know you had some things at 54 Below that were um, probably rescheduled <laughs> and then rescheduled again, but are they in? Three times. As of now, my 54 Below show is not about me. It's scheduled for July. Don't know if that's going to happen, but just keep, you know, it's out there. It'll be back sometime. And, you know, Prada's coming around the corner. We'll see. I'm, a, you know, now it's like, what's next? What's today? Nothing? Great. Then I'll do laundry. <laughs> I'll do laundry and maybe you know watch something uh, on Netflix that I've never seen before that'll inspire me because of the work of the artist or not do it and go make a chicken burger and well <laughs> french fries whatever you're nailing it thank you so much you are amazing you're just an amazing artist and human oh. you can tell just by talking to you that's so sweet thank you and again congrats congratulations on giving birth to what you're doing right now Thank you. Thank yes, you. podcast. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you again for letting me put on pants. <laughs> Thank you.